Hello and welcome to the Emmanuel Croydon podcast. At Emmanuel Croydon, we exist to be a community drawn together by our desire to know and follow Jesus. We long to become disciples of Jesus who are equipped to serve him in the whole of life, transforming families, communities and workplaces as we love God with heart, mind, soul and strength. hope you enjoy this week's talk from the morning services. Thank you for joining us today. Grace and peace to you. I want you to imagine for a moment that you had been with Jesus. You'd lived alongside him as he went about his earthly ministry You'd seen the miracles, you'd seen the crowds, you'd heard the teaching, you'd sensed the advancing kingdom of God. And now you have to explain to a 21st century Westerner, what did it feel like? What did it feel like? Okay, now you have the advantage that you have had the life history that you've had. So you've got a a couple of reference points. Being with Jesus was like... Dot, dot, dot. How, how would you finish the sentence? Perhaps you might say, being with Jesus was like being with the most amazing expert trauma surgeon. You know, people would come to that surgeon with just lives, I mean, literally in pieces. And just in an extraordinary, frankly miraculous way, he would put them back together again. Or... Perhaps it was a bit like sitting at the feet of some great professor or, 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 or teacher. Being with Jesus was like being that, with that world expert on whatever it was. And she, just every word she spoke was just so full of wisdom. And you got the sense that behind it was just this whole mountain of knowledge. Or how about this one? Being with Jesus was was like standing around the back of one of London's leading restaurants, like, say, the Ivy um, or, or the Ritz, at the end of the evening, and watching the chef throw a cartload of incredibly expensive food into the bin. Thank you for the illustration over there. <laughs> well, today we're, we're beginning a new series We're beginning a new series of sermons running all the way up to Easter, looking at the final chapters of Mark's gospel. And the passages are lined up so that we end up uh, at the resurrection on Easter day. And we're going to be, as it were, going step by step with Jesus on the way through the, the story, hopefully discovering or at least rediscovering for ourselves these momentous events. And yet as we begin, that may have sounded quite absurd what I just said to you, Our first episode, at least as far as the disciples who were concerned, who were there, it felt like option three. It felt like standing around the back of an incredibly expensive restaurant, watching the chef throw the highest quality ingredients in the bin. It was a bewildering, uh, frankly, rather inappropriate, certainly incongruous moment on the way through one of the weightiest and and most intense moments of the whole gospel story. And yet, as we hear Jesus respond, we realize 
But here in this moment, we are seeing one of the most powerful pictures of how you and I are called to respond to Jesus. And I'm praying that together this morning, we, we're going to be drawn into that, drawn to this amazing, extravagant, dare I say, reckless devotion to our Lord Jesus Christ. Three words I want to use to map our way through the story. Waste, worship, and witness. But uh, first of all, just a little bit of background. Matthew chapter 26, verse 1 says this. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, as you know, the Passover is two days away and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. So we're two days short of uh, Jesus' crucifixion. But Matthew wants to be absolutely clear. Jesus knows what's going on. He, he, he's knowingly walking into his future. And yet as soon as Matthew has said that, he wants to give us alongside that the story of human beings in real time, with real agency, conspiring, strategizing to ensure that this outcome that they don't yet think has been guaranteed, they don't even know is going to happen, is going to happen. So verse 3. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. It's a sort of extraordinary juxtaposition. Jesus knows exactly where he's going to go. It has to go there. And there's a bunch of people who are trying to make it happen. It's such an important strand on all the gospel accounts, actually. In the crucifixion, God's unavoidable sovereignty on the one side, his complete control over all the events. And then on the other side, human agency, human responsibility, the sense that people are making their own decisions. Somehow, both of these things are entirely true. And then we find ourselves at the house of Simon the leper in Bethany. And here begins our story proper. And it's a story we find not only here, but we find it also in Mark and unusually in the Gospel of John. Uh, there's also a, a, an account that sounds a bit like it in, in the Gospel of Luke, in Luke 7. Though I think it's, it's a different occasion, although the, some of the activity is similar. But I'm going to deliberately leave the, the extra bits that we learn from elsewhere in the Bible out, not least because they're not here in, in Matthew, but also because I think they change our impression. So first up, our first word to map our story, we have wastes. The disciples are appalled at the waste of hugely valuable resources. Matthew 26, verse 6. While Jesus was in Bethany, in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume. I wonder what she's going to do with it. Which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. Now, I spent too much time this week trying to think about what clever thing I might do to try to make us all feel what this would be like. And I did have the thought of uh, going out to buy the most expensive bottle of wine I could find at Oddbins and obviously charging it to the expense account and so forth, and then pouring it on the floor and watching you all. The good thing about that would have been the shock in the room. The, the bad thing would have been the floor um, and also the bill. And I just think that's probably ethically a bit questionable. Uh, so uh, I haven't done that. Um, the more godly option, as I, as I considered it, seemed probably to go down to where all our bottles are and, and pick out a dearly loved bottle of single malt in front of you all 
and take the cap off. But sadly, I'm out, so that's... A, that's, that's um, and actually, none of that would have done. Because I'm, I'm, pre I'm pretty sure not only my cellar, but probably the whole of Croydon, for all its many strengths, is unlikely to contain a bottle of liquid that matches the value of what this lady poured out. My Google research tells me that, according to the, the Marken account anyway, we would need a Domaine de la Romanie Conti, Romanie Conti Grand Cru, 1990, as you know well, valued at $21,000, 200, 200 to, to reenact this moment appropriately. It was an astonishingly valuable thing. And what the disciples see is, I imagine, what you would see if I started pouring this out, waste. When the disciples saw this, verse 8, they were indignant. Who blames them? Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Now, the logic is, is pretty strong, isn't it? And I think we do well, first of all, to just enter into their thought process here. They've got a point. It was a pretty rash gesture. For a start, it's not really needed, is it? I mean, there's a certain irony that the guy who famously never had a place to lay his head now apparently requires a whole jar of perfume over it. It's not really his style, is it? It's not really how he rolls. And it's not like they're being greedy for themselves either. They're not saying, hang on, give us some of it. Give us some of it or, or, or sell it and then give us the cash. No, they say they want to sell it and give the money to the poor. That is a good cause, is it not? In fact, isn't it Jesus' cause? Isn't that the thing that he is particularly famous for? Wasn't he always making a point about looking after the lowly and the downtrodden? Hadn't he taught them to think like this, to uphold justice, to act with compassion to those most in need? This was a waste, surely. But Jesus doesn't see it that way. He doesn't see it that way. For him, this is worship. And that's our second word. Waste, worship. Matthew 26, verse 10. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. Well, three things, I think, stand out in his response. He's saying, first of all, let her do it. Why are you bothering this woman means don't stop her. Jesus doesn't see a problem. But actually, he's stronger than that, isn't he? He says, this is beautiful. She has done a beautiful thing to me. I don't know about you, but just, I want you to imagine a bottle of perfume just kind of falling onto the floor. Does that make you think beautiful? What does he mean? Jesus seems to think there's something right Something good, something supremely wholesome about her actions. What could it possibly be? And here we get to the third thing he says, which I think reveals the answer. And the reason it's beautiful is because it's for him. It's for him. She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you but you will not always have me. I don't think he's disagreeing with the instinct to care for the poor. That's what the disciples of Jesus should be doing 
and we'll have many more generations of opportunity to do, including in our day right now. We have that opportunity. But this woman has a particular opportunity at this moment to express her devotion, her adoration, her worship of Jesus to him in person. And that is even more beautiful. Now, that is an extraordinary thing to say, isn't it? You know, the Jesus who encourages us to look after the poor, well, we would probably commend others who behave like that. The Jesus who says, don't give that to the poor, go buy some perfume and pour it on my head. That's not something we would commend in any other person, is it? Jesus accepts her worship. And of course, it makes sense because of who Jesus is. Jesus is God. He's the one, the one who is worthy of all of our worship, the one from which we come, the one who sustains us, the one for whom we exist, the one with whom we will be in eternity. And of course, this isn't just about that one woman in that one moment. Perhaps the spontaneity, the spontaneity, the extravagance of that moment is exceptional. But for all of us, the same applies. If we only had one opportunity to meet our Savior and express our love for him, we would do something like that ourselves, would we not? And I think that's why this woman remains nameless. And did you notice, speechless, she doesn't say anything either. Because here is an arresting picture of how Jesus wants anyone, every single person, to respond to him in general. We are to worship him. We are to re respond to him with extravagant, heartfelt, costly, outpouring love. There is an alabaster jar in your life. I don't know what it looks like. For each one of us, it looks different. But it's there. And the most beautiful thing that you can do is take it and pour it out on Jesus as an expression of your love and adoration for him. Now, in a sense, I could just stop there. And I want to be careful in what I say next because the moment we start thinking about specifically what this looks like, we might go back and get it wrong. Do you get the point? For example, giving to the poor might be part of our worship to Jesus. And Jesus is saying, no, get it the other way around. Get the worship right. Get the adoration right before you think of what it means practically. But let's just think for a moment what it might look like practically. Christians have done amazing things in, in worship, in adoration of Christ. Over the centuries and the millennia, Christians have spent hours and hours in prayer. They have built beautiful buildings. They've painstakingly painted beautiful pictures, art, wonderful representations of their Lord. They've crafted amazing music that tries to go after the, the beauty and, and, and the loveliness of their Savior. In the past few days, a, a number of bold evangelical leaders in, in Russia have issued a statement responding to what is going on in Ukraine. And this, for me, is another, is another example of adoration and worship to Jesus. They wrote, The time has come when each one of us must call things by their real names, while we still have a chance to escape punishment from above and prevent the collapse of our country. And together they, they, they signed a letter 
to the Russian authorities. They said, we call on the authorities of our country to stop this senseless bloodshed. It was a huge move that could land many of those who signed this letter uh, in, in jail in Russia, not, not least with the way that the law is changing there. And I, I read this week of a Ukrainian church leader who responded to this, and he said, they literally are risking their lives, but they show their love to the Lord and his body in doing so. One picture of what it means to love the Lord. One show of costly worship. But what about us? We may not feel we have anything particularly highbrow uh, to give. We may feel our situation is, is rather mundane, that there's no great sacrificial stand that we can take and plant our flag on. And yet our lives can be lives of adoration too. Can we give our time in the quiet to the Lord? More importantly, can, in whatever we do, we give our hearts to the Lord? Because bottom line, that is what this act of worship is. Christianity can be seen in, in, in lots of different ways. It, it can be seen as, as an identity, as, as a label. You know, I am, I'm, I'm white, I'm half English, half German, I'm, I'm a Christian. And it is a label, it is an identity to some degree, but, but it's more than that. The Christian faith can be seen as a ticket to ride, if you like. You know, we believe and now we have salvation from sin for eternity. And it's that too. It's a label, it is a ticket to ride to some, some degree. But much more than that, the Christian faith is an attitude. It's an attitude of love and adoration for Jesus. Worship, devotion to him, extravagant, no holds barred, reckless love for our God and Savior. For no other reason, and I'm sorry that the advert has spoiled this particular phrase, than he is worth it. Because he is worth it. I wonder whether you know Jesus like that. Do you see Jesus that valuable? Is he the most precious thing that life affords? The one whose worth exceeds every other worldly good that you can imagine. And I say that knowing that perhaps for some here in this room, that is a completely extraordinary idea. And you have never heard anything like that. I would love to, if there's you, I'd love to speak to you afterwards or, or grab me or one of the team, one of the welcomers, someone who looks like they haven't got anything to do for a moment. What's this business about loving Jesus? And of course, it's a very good question because it begs the question, why? Why should we value Jesus so highly? And that brings us on to the final of the three W's. Witness. Witness. There's a little moment in what the woman actually signifies in what she does. But just before we get there, I just want to note two more things. Note two little implications. One implication from what the disciples do. It's possible, even for followers of Christ, to regard as a waste something which is beautiful. It's possible for us as followers of Christ to think something beautiful is a waste. Judas's example is a, is a particularly strong warning. I wonder whether you noticed that at the end. The woman pours out her perfume, and then we're told that Jesus sells, uh, Judas sells Jesus for, for 30 silver pieces, sort of a measly day's wages. 
It is possible to sell Jesus, you know, tragically short like that. But I guess it's also possible, like the rest of the disciples, to just sort of slightly dismiss devotion to Jesus. To see that kind of focus on him, to see that kind of outpouring of love at him at the expense of other activity, you know, particularly when it stops people doing really noble and, you know, productive things. We can look at that and go, that's just a bit, I mean, is that really necessary? It's just a bit futile, isn't it? Why would you do that when you can be out there changing the world? It's possible to see something that Jesus says is beautiful as a waste. And then the second implication, more positively, I think, is that no offering lavished on Jesus is wasted. No offering lavished on Jesus is wasted. No offering is forgotten. You know, I think the reason, another reason why Matthew leaves out this woman's name is not because he didn't know who she was, because he could have read that in Mark, but just like any other person, he realized that if he didn't give her a name, she could be any of us. And did you see that amazing little verse, which, by the way, is where you feature in the gospel, and so do I, verse 13. Truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Isn't that extraordinary? We're sort of fulfilling that prophecy right now. But do you get the point? This nameless woman's offering to Jesus was not forgotten. And neither will yours be. Even if no one else sees it. That's worship. And finally, and very briefly, witness. What the woman does for Jesus is witness. It's a testimony about what is to happen. One more detail from verse 10. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. Now here goes. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Now, just so that we're clear, the, the normal thing, of course, would be that someone would die and then their body would be prepared. And Matthew deliberately makes no mention of the preparation of Jesus' body for burial apart from this moment. So, of course, it's unusual to anoint someone while they're still alive. And let, yet you get the point. This action points to the fact that Jesus is about to die. Now, we don't really know how much she understands. Did, did she get it? Did she really see it? Or is it that she just poured out the, the perfume and then Jesus said, by the way, she's kind of saying more than she knows? I'm not sure we've got the answer to that. But what we do know is the hand of God is leading all these actions. He's bringing people on, on and off the stage to make the whole thing means something more than any of the individual people know. For many people, their death is the end of their useful time on earth. But for Jesus, his death is going to be the pinnacle of it. And here, this woman teaches us with her witness. If you're wondering why the Lord Jesus might deserve our devotion... Well, it's all about his death. The Lord Jesus went to the cross. And at the cross, he took, he bore the punishment for our sin. That which we deserve, he took for us so that we might not suffer it. 
That is the wonderful news of the cross. The cross, which looks so gruesome at a distance, is in fact amazing good news because on it, our salvation is portrayed. And that act is worthy of all our devotion. Now again, if that's new to you, I'd love to explore that with you. Come and speak to me afterwards and I'd love to say a bit more about it. And if it's old, I'd like to invite you this Easter, this Lenten Easter, to, have a, to come round it again, to explore it again, to, to deepen your understanding of it again, and through it find new joy and new sustenance for your life of faith. Let's pray. She has done a beautiful thing. Lord, we thank you for the, for the many ways in which we see costly devotion around us. We thank you for the many people in this church who have committed themselves to you, the many lives that have been changed, the many sacrifices that have been made for you from which we all benefit. Lord, we pray so much that we too would be those who are devoted to you, who know you to be the most precious thing in our lives. And we pray all this for the sake of the Lord Jesus, whom we love in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Emmanuel Croydon podcast. For more information about our church and everything we have going on, visit our website, emmanuelcroydon.org.uk You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram to see and hear what's going on in the life of our church. God bless you and have a wonderful week.